Well, good morning. Did you notice Trevor on the piano like a kid in a candy shop? Very sincerely, we're going to share in our offering. Ushers, come down. Really sincerely, when you give each week, you make ministry happen all across the church. Every ministry that takes place happens because you're giving. But the little things like this, being able to bring the piano in uh, for the next couple of weeks. You heard about the night of worship coming. Uh, thank you for being a part of our church and your giving. If you're visiting with us this morning, there's absolutely no expectation for you to give. Uh, we give as vol- voluntarily as part of our worship. If you're visiting, we're just glad to have you here this morning. Uh, I'm Pastor Scott. I tend to happen to be the lead pastor here. Uh, I've been gone the past couple of weeks. I'll tell you about that momentarily. I want to just draw your attention to this card you received when you came in. Uh, Christmas Eve is now just weeks away, and we're hoping that you will invite folks to join you. We got five Christmas Eve services. We got the first one that starts at 10 o'clock a.m. Uh, at North Avenue. This year, Christmas Eve is on a Sunday. Our first service is at 10 a.m. at North Avenue, and then the rest you'll see on the on the other side of the card that uh, start at uh, 12:30 and then run up till five o'clock. Hopefully, you'll not only be here. But but invite someone to come with you. Even though it's Christmas Eve and sometimes the thought is, oh, it's a busy time. It is. You'll be amazed. You've heard me say this over and over again. You'll be amazed who would say yes if you would just ask and just say to them, I would love for you to come to Christmas Eve. Please know our approach on Christmas Eve. It's a more intimate time. We have the candlelighting at the end, but always it's a message of hope. Um, we need hope. Those of us who know Jesus, those of us here every week, we need hope. But as you bring friends, the world's looking for hope. And it's always the message of hope because that is the message of Jesus. So hopefully you'll be a part of that. That night, inviting folks to come and be with you. You have those cards, please use them. This morning, I want to give introduction. Uh, so I'm here, but I'm not preaching. The past two weeks, uh, I have been gone. I have been leading a group of 70 pastors and pastor's wives on a Protestant Reformation trip, which started in Berlin, Germany, and then worked its way down through Wittenberg, following the steps of Martin Luther, all the way down to Munich, and then from Munich to Rome, finishing in Rome for a couple of days. Less than 36 hours ago, I was in Rome, Italy. And as we were getting ready with 70 pastors and wives the night before our departure uh, to come home, about 10 o'clock at night, I got a notification that said the group's flights were canceled. This was not the first time on the trip it's happened. It happened one other time in the trip that our flights were canceled. And so at that point, have, you know, if, if it's a family of if two of you or family of five and your flight gets canceled, fixing that's fairly simple. I got 70 people. Uh, that's no small feat. So quite literally one night, Diane and I were up uh, probably 44 hours uh, straight trying to figure out some things. And at that point, this is the day before we leave, I'm thinking, I'm not going to get back in time to preach. My plan was I'd be home in time to preach, everything would set, but now it's doubtful. And so I sent an email real quick. This is in the middle of the night, Italy time. Back to Adele, who you might, many of you know Adele, who, who works alongside of me as a professional assistant. And I sent her a note along with the, the, uh, the elders, um, Trevor and Cam, and saying, listen, here's the deal. I may not be back. And the people we'd have preached, they're with me. You know, Pastor Greg is with me. Pastor Matt's with me. I said, so we got nobody. I said, so you better come up with a plan. I said, but I got, I'll give you some options. Option A is, we tell Trevor and Cam, just do an extended worship Christmas carol sing-along. I said, we can do that. I said, or we can do just a, a night of worship type of thing Sunday morning, or we can have one of the elders or even have an usher preach. I thought that would be great fun. Uh, and, 
Every one of them was ready. They all said, whatever we got to do. Uh, Steve Schoenberg, one of our elders, had a note out, said, I'm calling for an elders meeting. We'll figure it out. So everyone's ready to step in. So I get, I get done with that email, and it's the middle of the night in Italy. And it dawns on me. I said, wait a minute, Tom Flanders. Many of you remember Tom. Tom was our district superintendent here. He's been here many, many times. A good friend of, of ours, Slocum's, a good friend of the church, a, a great communicator. And it dawns on me, I remember that he's actually in Massachusetts. And he's now, you know, if you remember, he was our district superintendent here until he abandoned us in New England to go to, to go to be the district superintendent in Florida. And I know, he, I knew he was in Massachusetts. And so I'm thinking to myself, it's the middle of the night, going, wait a minute, he's in Massachusetts, he's a district superintendent. They do next to nothing anyway. And then I'm thinking, and he's not in a church. Well, you know, in a church, I got to preach every week. You know, so every week you get a sermon, right? He's a district superintendent. He prepares one sermon a year, and he just preaches it over and over and over again until the next year. So I figure he's got to be ready, and he's doing nothing. In the middle of the night, I call him. I go, hey, listen, here's the deal. I might get back. I might not get back. What are you doing? Can you come up? Come up and preach. He said, give me five minutes. He hangs up. I make a couple other calls. He calls me back. He says, I'm in. I'll be there. He says, whether you're there or not, I'm just coming up. I'll preach for you. Just so you know, that's a friend. Number two, he's actually an incredible preacher. Number three, he actually has a new sermon. <laughs> Tom, thanks for being here, buddy. Come on up. Always an auspicious, uh, auspicious introduction, uh, and much appreciated. Uh, a number of years ago, I was actually introduced on a Sunday morning here at Essex Alliance, and Pastor Scott was not uh, present that day, and one of the elders said something like this. He said, I know it must be Christmas because I'm at Essex Alliance Church, and Tom Flanders is here preaching. And um, I went back, and I looked over my calendar, and indeed, it was the case that I've often uh, made an appearance here at Essex Alliance Church on a Sunday in uh, December to bring a message. And uh, as you just heard, however, I'm not here today uh, because there's any great pre-planning on my part or Pastor Scott's part. Um, I'm here because uh, he needed coverage and indeed I will tell you this is a new message because I looked at all the Christmas messages I had available and realized I'd preached every one of those at Essex Alliance Church. <laughs> and so... I had to start praying Friday night and saying, God, what do you want me to say to that group of people on that day? And spent all day yesterday and even time this morning preparing what it is that I think God would have me to share with you. But I will also tell you that I'm here because of a completely unexpected set of circumstances in mine and my wife's life. Uh, the truth of the matter is we were supposed to be a part of that Reformation tour. Uh, that tour was planned a number of years ago while I was still the district superintendent. And then COVID came, and so we were unable to go. And so the idea was picked back up after we indeed did abandon New England to move to Florida. And uh, the trip was planned, and the district was incredibly gracious and contacted myself and my wife and said, we know that you were planning to lead this the last time, and so we'd like to invite you to join us this time, which we were thrilled to do. Uh, and so I came up from Florida. We still have a son who lives in Massachusetts. We were visiting him a little bit. And in the middle of the night, uh, before we were to have boarded our plane in Boston, I get a message from Lufthansa that says, 
your flight has been canceled. And I think to myself, oh, great. You know, we're headed out in the morning. We're going to get to the airport, do a little shopping in the city uh, before we depart. And we're going to land the next day over in Berlin. It's a trip that we've been looking forward to for almost a year. We planned on a couple of free days, some things that we were going to do, a couple of bucket list items. We were going to go to a seaside village in Italy and just enjoy, in addition to the tour, a little bit of free time uh, in uh, Italy. And we were just thrilled at the prospect of departing. Well, needless to say, um, we didn't get there. And um, uh, part of that had to do with some experiences, as I said to you a moment ago, we couldn't have anticipated or expected. Um, They were difficult and completely unplanned, of course. And yet we just sort of said, well, we'll roll with it. And I said to my wife, well, let's adjust. It's almost a two-week trip. We'll go for the last week. We'll just fly into Munich. We'll get a little time in Germany. We'll head over to Italy. Uh, We're going to see some of the highlights of the tour and be with the group for about a week. And don't you know, as we were uh, getting ready to board that flight, we get another notice that that flight has also been canceled because Germany is getting one of the worst winter storms that they've got in the last 20 to 25 years. And so they're going to shut down the airports in Munich and in Frankfurt. And yet the airline says to me, but if you're up for an adventure, we'll fly you to this part of the world and then maybe we can get you into Germany someday. And if you don't mind a little adventure, you can board a train and see if you can figure out where your group is now after they've departed from the city and it'll all be fine in time. Now my wife's far more adventurous than I am with something like that. But I said, okay, I'm up for it. Let's do what we need to do only for the flight to be canceled and then to tell us, listen, if you take off, you're probably going to be stuck in Portugal for four to five days. Is that okay? (laughs) And at that point, we just decided, you know what, we're going to pull the plug. And so that's really, in the end, what allows me to be here today. Because like some of your pastoral staff that arrived later last evening, uh, that's probably what would have happened to us if we were not already still in some other country awaiting a return to the United States. Um, And uh, all of these things were sort of happening, and there's a whole lot more that in the last two weeks has happened to the point where my wife said to me yesterday, do you ever just feel like you're waiting for the shoe to drop? You know, what's going to happen next? And she's never an alarmist, but she said, I've decided I'm going to plan nothing ever again for the rest of our lives. And I said, well, that's a bit hyperbolic. Don't you think you should back away from a statement like that? And then I quoted a verse, you know, that comes from the book of James. The Lord says, if he wills, we should plan to go do this or that. Probably not the best idea, fellas, when your wife's really disappointed to quote a Bible verse and tell her everything's going to be okay. (laughs) But... um, The truth of the matter is, is that's what sort of left us here. And at one point, as we were just sort of discussing it, we said, you know, it's kind of fitting that it's all happening right now. In fact, it feels a bit timely because if Advent is anything, it's sort of a a season of surprise and of the unexpected. Isn't that the case? I mean, when you think about it, no one was expecting an angel to show up in the sky in the middle of the night and announce to 
a group of herdsmen that, um, hey, uh, you just need to know there's a savior now and he's been born into the world. He's already here. I mean, that caught everyone, not only the shepherds, shepherds, completely by surprise. And a part of the reason why it's sort of a, not just surprising announcement, but uh, it, it seems um, maybe a bit out of order, if you will, and completely unexpected is because of exactly when it happens in the time of human history. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that the angels appear and make heaven's announcement at a time when many people think that God's dead or at least that he's been marginalized, uh, so much so that no one's really interested. Or, or best case scenario, God has just looked down upon the world and decided that he, he, he's going to give up on humanity. There's, there's about a, a 400 year period of time between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament with the announcement of Jesus' birth. And most commentators refer to that 400 year span of time as the silent years. Because it's a period of time when no great feats of God, if you will, are being record, recorded in the annals of history. There's no, no biblical text for that period of time uh, among humanity. And, and God either seems to have, you know, sort of built a brass ceiling over humanity because he doesn't have anything to say to them and he's not interested in hearing anything they have to say. And it just seems that between heaven and earth, everything's gone quiet. Now, there's a lot happening in the world. This is the time of, of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and military conquerors like Alexander the Great. In, in fact, what most people would say is happening at this time in history is that God has been removed from the throne and these great leaders of thought have assumed the thrones of the world and, and we ought to listen to them. And, and people like Plato and Aristotle have set up these institutes of thought, sort of the, the precursor to the university, if you will, and they're taking the emerging generations of people and they're gathering them together and they're sort of educating them with their way of thinking. And Aristotle in particular is just consumed with this idea that the only hope that remains for the world is if we can somehow get all the peoples of this planet together and put them under a common economy, military, and social structure. And so uh, conquerors like Alexander the Great set off on a, on a campaign to try to subdue all the peoples and countries of the world. And we know that as Hellenization or the Greekifying of society. And you either get on board or you'll be thrown overboard. That's what's happening in the world. And all of it 
quite honestly, is godless at its core. I mean, it seems that God's not saying anything to humanity, and humanity is sort of building these thrones and these institutes or centers of thought, and everybody's being influenced by it. And this Greekifying of society and the world is why the New Testament that you read in part is written in the Greek language and not in Hebrew or Aramaic. That's why when you, when you study it, you find, well, that was the language with which the story of Christ is recorded because it was the language of the day. No. I mean, it was the Apostle Paul who in the New Testament, you may remember, was looking back at this, this time in history and he references what God does in Bethlehem with the birth of Jesus and he's trying to put it in perspective and what he says to his hearers is that it was pleroma. I mean, a word that, that you've likely never heard before and certainly not a word that you would use. It means that when God decided to do in Bethlehem what he did with the birth of Jesus, it happened at precisely the right moment. It was in the fullness of time when history was pregnant for the arrival of Jesus that he was born into human history. Aren't you glad that in the midst of a time in history that seems incredibly evil and chaotic, God actually has not given up on humanity and he continues to insert himself among them even when it feels like an unexpected intrusion to do what he will do among people. There's still hope even when you're alive at a time like that in the world. It seems a bit timely for us, doesn't it? I mean, I don't remember being alive at a time in my, you know, years here on planet Earth where it's ever felt quite so tenuous as it feels today. And Paul has the gift of retrospect, as do you and I. And so... He's looking at it from a bit of a historical perspective, but what he goes on to explain is that the perspective that human beings take on history and the perspective that God takes on history are often very different. Human beings are interested in history as a recording of events. This is what happened. And every once in a while, we associate a person or a group of people with the event that has occurred. Um, God, Paul reminds us, seems more interested in history by what it is that people of faith choose to do while they're alive in the world. That's how God records history. As history is being written in heaven today, um, there are things and names of people uh, recorded there that are never going to be found in the annals of human history. They're, they're not available. And if you mentioned uh, this person by name, um, the best scholars would say, never heard of him, don't know anything about it. Um, but God does. 
God does. He knows all about it. And if Advent reminds us of anything, it is that God takes rather nondescript people in an unexpected set of circumstances and does something marvelous if they will respond to what it is that he's up to. I mean, think about it. The shepherds, right? I mean, this was an unlikely set of candidates to announce the arrival of Jesus to humanity. I mean, they're out there in the middle of the night doing whatever herdsmen do through uh, the, the evening and in the darkness until the morning sun comes up. And uh, the, the writer of, of Luke's gospel tells us that they were terrified at the angel's appearance and his announcement. They were, they were undone. I, I mean, it just came completely out of nowhere. Isn't it often that way when God shows up in your life in ways that you didn't expect but are real and profound and it has a significant impact on you? You're left a little undone, aren't you? I mean, I can think of maybe on one or two hands where I was at a place where God showed up in a way that was so real, it, it almost felt palpable. I mean, I know he wasn't there in the corner, but it, it felt as though he could have been. Um, I don't have those experiences all the time, and I suspect you don't either. <laughs> but that's why faith. But every once in a while, that's what happens. And, and the shepherds are terrified by this. If, if the notion of God coming out of heaven among humanity, whether it was 2,000 years ago or two days ago in a way that felt intensely personal for you, if that's a bit unsettling to you, that's probably a good thing. I mean, when, when God comes close to people, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. And uh, the shepherds don't know what to do. They know they shouldn't flee. Uh, this celestial choir shows up and begins singing a song more glorious than any they've ever heard before. And Luke tells us they listen to the song and the closing note happens and they look at each other and in my mind it goes something like this. Uh, well, we can't just stand around here any longer. What do you want to do? Uh, I don't know what you want to do, but I think that the only thing we can do is to try and go find the one that he's just told us about. And that's exactly what they do. They, they set off and in God's mercy, they find the Christ child. And here's what Luke says next. And they could not contain what it is that they had seen and heard. And so they decided to go tell widely to anyone and everyone who would give them a hearing what it is that heaven had announced to humanity and what it is that they had seen in the manger. Advent, friends, is a reminder that you have something to say to humanity. It isn't just angels and shepherds who have something to say. You have something to say this week to someone somewhere about why you hope in the midst of a world that feels like, you know, nobody's at the wheel right now. Um, you know, and uh, I, I don't know how it's all going to turn out. 
I, I told you that, that Chris and I were supposed to have been on this trip. And when it didn't happen, um, the truth is she was really disappointed. <laughs> and, you know, I'm a husband, so I just, I tried to fix it. Um, I, I bought her a new set of boots. Um, <laughs> They were on sale. It was a great deal. She loved them. I'm off to a good start. Um, I've been traveling a lot. I'd accumulated a bunch of points. And I booked us a really nice hotel uh, near the Boston Harbor in Boston. I used up all my points. In fact, I was a little short and I had to buy some points. But but I was like, we're on the 36th floor. Look at this view. And then I pulled a rabbit out of my hat. She's always wanted to see Andrea Bocelli, the Italian tenor, right? Well, Bocelli's 65 now. He doesn't come to America as often as he used to. I mean, he lives on the, you know, the Amalfi Coast. Who wants to leave there? But last Wednesday night, he had a one-night stop in Boston, Massachusetts at the TD Garden, which was sold out and had been for a long time. But I'm resourceful. So I find... You know, a legal t- ticket scalper. We used to call them scalpers. but And I pay a premium for these tickets. I mean, I spend some money. And we're still up there in the nosebleeds. I mean, we're way up there. But we're in the house with Andrea Bocelli. He's going to sing Christmas music. And he's going to sing Ave Maria. And my wife is going to think I'm the bomb. And it's going to mitigate a bit of the disappointment for not being able to get to Germany and Italy. The concert's at 8 p.m. We check into the hotel early in the day. I take her to a nice Italian dinner. And then I Uber over to the garden. We're in our seats. And um, we're just waiting for the concert to start. And I'm seeing all the just sort of joy on her face. I'm snapping little pictures. So when I'm in trouble, you know, a couple of weeks from now, I can say, remember this? It's 8 p.m. and the concert's, you know, going to start soon and no orchestra comes onto the platform. It's like 8.10. Then it's 8.20 and I say to her, you know, the Italians, they like to be fashionably late. It's fine. It's 8.30 and, you know, these are are New Englanders, Bostonians, right? Nobody's on the stage. I I paid for a concert. Everybody starts clapping. For who? I don't know, because no one has come onto the stage yet. At 8.45, this rather unkempt woman uh, comes onto the stage, and they put the spotlight on her and hand her a microphone, and she says, I'm Andrea Bocelli's wife. And everybody claps. I'm like, she's beautiful, but we didn't come to see her. We came to hear him. And she said... Thank you. That makes what I'm about to say all the more difficult. Andrea has had a medical episode and tonight's concert is canceled. And I went, what gives? What gives? No Germany, no Italy. On top of that, she was supposed to have come here with me last night. I think she's listening to the live stream right now. And an afternoon turn of events kept her from being able to come here and stay overnight at the Essex with me where we would have had a little dinner to have been here at one of her favorite churches, Essex Alliance Church. You know, and sometimes you look at the circumstances of your life and you go, how come things are going the way that they're going? 
But let me tell you what also happened while we were supposed to have been away in Europe on the tour. There's a lady we've gotten to know over the last three to four years, kind of professionally, nothing social. Um, And we were going to see her unexpectedly, but because we weren't in Europe, we were available. And uh, we went to where she was, only to find her looking horrible. I mean, she looked terrible. And we just said, what's wrong? And we find out she had just been physically assaulted. Seriously physically assaulted. I mean, the medical people weren't there yet. No authorities, nothing. And we, I, I suspect she may know we're people of faith, but we'd never told her about it, quite honestly. And in that moment, my wife looked at her and she said, listen, you'll get all the help that you need and and we'll do whatever we can. But in this moment, I need your hand. And she took her hand and she laid her hand over her hand and she said, I must pray for you. And she began praying for the woman. We saw her a couple of days ago and we said, please tell us how you're doing. She goes, the good news is all of my medical tests and procedures indicate it looks like I'm going to make a full recovery. I just want to thank you for praying for me and being so concerned about me. I have no idea whatsoever, had we been in Europe, whether God would have put a person of faith in her path at that moment or not. And I don't need to know. I just know this. We were there at that moment because we had an entirely different set of events planned that we were looking forward to and hoping for. And God in his providence, and I tend not to be a superstitious person, and I'm certainly not a fatalist. I'm like you, a person of faith. But every once in a while, you see God speak in the language of events and he puts you right where you are at the time you're to be there to do what he wants done and it may be that he wants you to be there to speak hope on his behalf to someone and listen God may someday give you the opportunity to speak to power I mean someday all the rulers of this world need to be confronted with saying no you're really not the king like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and Alexander the Great thought they were, no, you're actually not going to occupy the throne forever. Yours is just a temporary seat. It's going to go away. But there's one who's coming upon whom all the governments will rest on his shoulders. He will rule in perfect peace and righteousness. And someday you may have to say that to power, but it's more likely you're going to have to go home this week and speak to your neighbor or to your family member, or to a coworker, and you speak hope to them like those early carriers of the gospel did. They go from herdsmen to heralds. We don't know any of their names, and nobody's probably going to record your name or mine, but you go tell them that there's hope still for humanity, even though we're alive at a very precarious time in history, it seems. Think about the Magi. The Magi. I mean... These are not Jews, right? These are noblemen from another country who get a message from God that there's a new king of the Jews who's come into the world and you probably ought to go find him and as noblemen bring some gifts and you should go there to worship. And so they do that 
And when they get near to the place where Jesus is, they say, well, who's the ruler of this area? And it's a guy by the name of Herod. He, he oversees Jerusalem. And they say, well, take us to him. They're noblemen. The king receives them. And he says, well, why have you come? And he say, well, because God has directed us to be here. Um, good news. There's a new king in your midst. A king. He, he, he's not a Roman king. He's the king of the Jews. And Herod, as you know, um, he's... Uh, really sort of put off with the message. I mean, he's not at all uh, intrigued and he's not excited about it. In fact, he's really disturbed. And he says to them, okay, uh, well, great. Uh, Go find him. And when you find him, come back and tell me where he is. And you know the story. They've come there to worship Jesus and he wants to know where Jesus is so he can kill him because there's to be no other king in the world except for Caesar or Herod or his underlings. I mean, those are the only authorities that really should occupy thrones. And if you're telling me there's another king here, that's invariably going to be a problem in the future at some point down the road. So let's just take care of it right now. Well, he's, you know, very young. And so the noblemen know no different. They go off to find Jesus, except for that God tells them, listen, um, that king who says, when you find him, come back to me and tell me where he is, uh, he's conspiring to kill him. Um, you find him, you bring your gifts, and then you need to depart by another uh, route. You're going to go another way. You didn't plan this, but I'm messing with the circumstances of your life. You're going you're to take another route. And uh, no doubt they know they're in a foreign country. This king could have them uh, pursued, seized, arrested, imprisoned, maybe even executed. But it's more important to obey God than it is to obey earthly authority. And so they escape by this other route, a route that they had not planned to take. And you know, Herod is livid. He's beside himself as a result of what's happened. And so he decides that, um, listen, I um, will go and find all the children under a certain age. And if I can't find just this new king of the Jews, I'll extinguish as many as possible. I mean, it's a horrible time. What the Magi realize in that moment is this. Something incredibly glorious can be happening in history and in the world. And at the same time, right next to it, evil is rising up to resist it. That's still happening in the world. And what you and I realize is that as difficult as it is and as saturated with chaos and evil as the world will become in time, I can have no partnership with that. I mean, Advent is that sort of reminder that you have to live courageously in the face of evil and say no to it every once in a while. It was an incredible story, true story, of a little town in the south central part of France called Les Chambons. In 1940, the population of Les Chambons and the surrounding villages was only about 5,000 individuals. The, the, the town was was largely influenced by a Protestant pastor by the name of Andre Trochmi and his wife Magda. When the Holocaust was happening and Jews were beginning to flee into safer territories, one of the places where they were fleeing toward was this south central area of France and Les Chabons. And Trochmi realized that He needed to come to their aid, no matter what it meant. And so he would stand before his congregation and he would say something like this. There are people of the book 
arriving, would any of you receive them? And without exception, most of, or without exception, actually, the documentary says, uh, all of the parishioners would say, we will receive them. We will receive them. Later, he would have to change some of his language, and he would say, some Old Testaments arrived today. Would you like one? And people would say, we would, we would take one. And over that period of time, Le Chabon and that congregation became directly responsible for saving no less than 5,000 Jews who were being pursued and taken to concentration camps and inevitably to their deaths. Andre Trachme lived until 1971. His wife Magda lived until 1996. They are both now honorary members of the Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Memorial and Heroes in Jerusalem, that sort of museum. They're sort of there as figures who've been inducted into the Yad Vashem. Later, some of the people who would be spared, one of those by the name of Eric Schwamm, um, says that he arrived in Le Chabon, a refugee with his mother, his father, and his grandfather. And it would be this congregation that would help to spare their lives. In his death, he left a $2 million bequest to Le Chabon to do in that village whatever needs to be done with the money I have sent to you because you helped me to live and live a peaceful life after the Holocaust back in Austria. And so he was incredibly grateful. On one occasion, a Jewish woman was fleeing the Nazis and she knocked at Trachme's door in the middle of the night seeking help and his wife Magda opened the door and in time she attempted to go to the authorities in the town, the government, and to secure false papers to help her be safe until they could get her out of the area. The mayor was concerned that the Germans would come to the town and it would cost everybody as a result of their willingness to assist the Jews and denied the papers. And Magda would not be dissuaded. And they went on again to do whatever they could to, to shelter and to help and save these people of the book, as they called them. And later, they came to Trocme, these French sort of authorities, and said to him, you need to stop doing this. You're putting the whole town at risk. And Trocme said, I quote, he said, listen, we shall resist wherever our adversaries demand of us obedience contrary to the orders of the gospel. And the members of his church continued to volunteer by hiding Jews and helping them to be safe. Later in the documentary, they would interview some of the people who were still alive and a part of that congregation. And they said this, these people came here for help and shelter. And Trachme would often say to us, I am their shepherd and a shepherd does not forsake his flock. I don't know what a Jew is. I only know human beings. Eventually, Trachme was arrested and sent to a detention camp. He was released after 10 days and he had to spend the rest of his life in the war, the rest of the war underground. But Le Chambon's rescue operation continued even without him leading it as a result of the commitment of the congregation. And one writer goes on to say, the people of Le Chambon, what they did was a conspiracy of goodness. Another would say, listen, we were not any particularly moral or heroic people. We just helped them because it was the human thing to do. <laughs> Here's the 
Here's a final fascinating element of this true story. The residents of Les Chambon, they were descendants of French Protestants who were known as the Huguenots. You can read about it in human history. They were themselves, the Huguenots, victims of savage persecution at the hands of the French Catholic monarchy during the 16th and 17th centuries. And a method of survival that they used back then played an incredibly important role in this 20th century work of protecting the Jews. In the area around Les Chambon, you can go there today, the Huguenots had made secret rooms similar to the priest holes in England and secret paths through the mountains to Switzerland to smuggled pastors and Bibles into France. And even after Protestantism was legalized and Huguenots seemed to experience some relief, the people of the area kept the locations of these rooms and these paths secret since they never knew when they would have to use them again in the future. And providentially, they were still available. These rooms and these paths were put back into service to save the Jews from the Nazis. The Apostle Paul looking back at the moment of history of Jesus' birth and all of these other things sort of does shift our perspective to having a biblical, a biblical view of things. When in Thessalonians, he writes to the church and he uses a word that you don't usually think about when you're reading the Bible or thinking about the things of God. He says, remember when I was with you for that three-week span of time? It was just two Sabbaths and three weeks, and God poured out his spirit, and there was this incredible sort of season of fruitful ministry, and a whole bunch of people came to believe, Jews, non-Jews, prominent people, a whole bunch of folks were baptized and added to the church, and they're all like, yes, we remember that. It only lasted for about three weeks, and then everybody took note of it, especially because prominent people were now converting to being followers of Jesus, and they came in, and they started pressuring you and your missionary friends, and then he started threatening you, and you had to escape for your own life. And Paul says to this group in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, I want you to know it was only because of God's help that we dared to continue proclaiming Christ to you, even though we face strong opposition. The key word in that verse is dared. Now, you don't usually think about dared and the Bible together, do you? No, most of us, as Americans, the first time we heard the word dare was on the playground. Remember that? When your buddy looked at you and said, I dare you. And he would dare you to do something really stupid. Right, something you probably shouldn't do, maybe you even couldn't do, but nobody wants to be known for their cowardice, so you'd give it the old college try. Right? You might succeed and be a hero for the moment. You might fail and have egg on your face, but at least you tried. Right? What you need to know is that when the Bible uses that word dare, it's not this sort of bravado or audacity that we typically associate with the word that Paul has in mind. It's nothing like that at all. Maybe a better way of understanding it is to, to use the word boldness, maybe even holy boldness, because God helped us 
We would never be able to do this on our own. Save the Jews or speak to power or proclaim Christ when we're being persecuted and threatened with our own lives. We would never be able to do this were God not here helping us. But because he is, we dared to continue to be bold in the face of evil and resistance. And we still did what God has called us to do. We're going to live courageously until we die or until we are brought to his side. Advent is a reminder that you have something to say. Speak hope to humanity. And it's also a reminder that you're going to have to live courageously in this world if you're going to stay faithful to God until you are brought to his side. I mean, that's really the story of the Magi. (laughs) Yeah, we're not partnering with that. There's evil out there, but God is with us and he's helping us and we dare to go do this. That's what the Apostle Paul says. (laughs) The last sort of character of Advent, we'll consider this morning. Zechariah. You got some shepherds who speak hope. You got the magi who live courageously. And then you've got (laughs) Zechariah, who not everybody knows about. He's a priest. Um, He's probably not the lead priest because the circumstances of his life were a, a, a bit less than ideal. But he's a priest. That, that means he stays at the temple. He attends to the things of God, the people of God. And when, um, when the opportunity presents itself, which is incredibly rare, he gets to go into the very inner recesses of the temple and he lights the incense. And this incense rises up to heaven. It wafts before the nostrils of God and God receives that as praise. And it's like you singing your song this morning. Something comes up from earth to heaven and God looks down and he's pleased that people are taking note of him. And Zechariah doesn't get to do it very often. It's probably been a really long time. But the way they decide that day who gets to go inside there and do all of that is they cast lots. And surprisingly, the lot falls to Zechariah. Talk about surprise. Again, he's a priest. But but he's a priest that everybody looks at with a bit of a sideways glance because he and his wife, Elizabeth, they're well along in years now, and they've never been able to have children. And in that day, if you couldn't have children, that was considered a curse from God. Heaven has shown you no favor, and God doesn't seem to be your friend. Zechariah, though, and his wife, the Bible says, have nonetheless lived righteously before the Lord. Isn't that the great test for humanity? When things do not go your way as you would have wished or wanted, will you still live righteously before the Lord? It's going to be the great challenge all the more as these days unfold. And so Zechariah goes in and he's doing what the priest does in that moment. And much to his surprise, an angel appears right there. I mean, he wasn't expecting it, even though he'd gone into the temple. You weren't expecting anything like that when you came to church here this morning, right? I mean, nothing. I mean, you were expecting probably exactly what you've gotten here today. But Zachariah is surprised. And the angel says, hey, I I got something to tell you. Do tell. Um, Your wife, Elizabeth, she's going to be pregnant with a child. You're actually going to end up having a son. And not just any old son. I want you to know he's going to be noted as great among Israel. Um, He's going to speak to people far and near and bring them back to God. 
They've wandered from God, but he's going to help bring them back. And then he's going to get this incredible privilege of going before the coming Messiah and announcing his arrival to humanity. And he's just going to be used powerfully for the kingdom of heaven. And Zechariah is there and he's, he's a bit mesmerized and no doubt a bit amazed. And it's an incredible promise, right? And I mean, it's an angel who's telling him this. He didn't read the tea leaves. I mean, he got it from heaven itself. And he just has one question for the angel, just one. And it seems a perfectly reasonable question. And it's just this, that sounds great. Can you just tell me how I'll know for sure that all of this is going to happen as you said? I mean, doesn't that seem acceptable? I mean, Pastor Scott said a few years ago, we moved from New England, where we've lived for a long time, to Florida. I wasn't ready to go there yet. I'm not retired. And there were some things I had to work out. And I just said, hey, God, how's all this going to work out? Would you, would you mind? It doesn't seem... A too difficult a question when God tells you to go do something or he's involved in the language of events of your life and something's become apparent. It doesn't seem too much that you should be able to say to heaven, can you just give me some reassurance how I'm going to know, for example, that this is actually going to happen? Could Jesus maybe just this one time appear right over there in the corner and just confirm everything? Right? I mean, it doesn't seem an unreasonable question, does it? But apparently... Every once in a while, it is. And the angel, I don't think he shakes his head in disgust, but he looks at Zechariah and he says, listen, I told you what God told me to tell you. And now as a result of you needing reassurance, you're not going to be able to say a thing until all this stuff comes to pass, as I've told you it will. And he walks out of the temple and everybody looks at him and goes, something happened in there. And they say, what happened? And he He's got nothing. And he goes home and Elizabeth says to him, how was work today, honey? And he's got nothing. And for the better part of a year, he's got nothing for anyone. He can't say a word until finally she gives birth to this child who's been promised to them. And her family's there and they say, well, what are you going to name him? And she says, John. And everybody says, John? We got nobody in the family named John. His father's not named John. His father's Zachariah. Name him after his father. I mean, his father's waited a long time for him. And Zachariah takes a tablet and he just writes, his name is John, as the angel has said. And you know him. He will go on to be known as John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the reminder that, you know what? There's hope and help coming for humanity. And so you need to just trust as I needed to do. And in the moment that he writes that down, God decides to loose his tongue. And for the first time in nearly a year, Zechariah can speak, only he decides, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to sing, and I'm not going to just sing any old song. I will sing his praise. And he sings the most exuberant song of praise he's ever sung in his life. Play Roma in a perfect way at just the right time. God intrudes into history and he intrudes into your life and mine. 
And don't you ever believe that he's not there on that throne today looking at what he's going to do with you with the days you've got left in this world. He's up to something. It's meant to give you more than just a definition to a Bible word. It's meant to elevate your perspective, to give you a keen awareness, to see how God's at work right beside you. Even though you seem like an unlikely candidate for what he's doing in the world, so did shepherds, noblemen who were not Jewish, and a nondescript priest marvel and say at just the right time he came. So hear me, friends, continue until you see him to speak hope, to live with courage, and to walk by faith. Will you stand with me? Let's sing this song. Oh
Thank you, Father, for not leaving us to the whims of history or humanity. And thank you for taking a very real and personal interest in the circumstances of our lives. If this season, if your coming has shown us anything, it has shown us this is true. For whatever needs are represented here by the gathering of this room, and there are many, may your spirit tend to the hearts and the needs of each one. Grant them what heaven provides for body and spirit, that we may look up and be comforted that we have been called the sons and the daughters of God. For this, we are grateful, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Merry Christmas.